This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. How we hold meetings, how we collaborate with colleagues, our working hours, nearly everything about how we work has changed over the last 20 months. And this new version of work has thankfully allowed for at least a little bit more equality in the lives of people with disabilities and working parents, among others. But being removed from the physical office space hasn't solved many issues of inequality. Workplace harassment, for example, has actually increased in the months since office workers have been at home. Joining me to discuss workplace harassment in the age of remote and hybrid work is Ellen Powell. Ellen is a tech investor, advocate, and the former CEO of Reddit, and the CEO and co-founder of the diversity inclusion nonprofit Project Include. Ellen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So most people would probably assume that harassment would decrease when colleagues aren't in physical proximity to each other, but Project Include has found that that hasn't been the case. Based on your research, can you quantify just how much harassment has increased during the pandemic and this move to remote work? Yeah, it was fascinating because when we had the thought that perhaps finally we'd have some safety and we started hearing anecdotal evidence and story after story of people experiencing more harm and feeling like they were all experiencing more harm at work. And we actually decided we would quantify it and we would actually run a survey. We surveyed almost 3,000 people and we found that there was a lot more harassment that uh, people, especially with marginalized identities, were experiencing more harm in the form of harassment or hostility than they had before. So we asked people, you know, whether... They had experienced an increase in harassment since COVID. Um, And this survey was done, I think, between, you know, in the fall of 2020. And like 14% experienced an increase in harassment based on age, 26% based on gender, 10% based on race or ethnicity. And people also experienced more hostility at levels of like 14% for age, 30% for gender, 13% for race or ethnicity. And we found, though, that like if you looked at the people who experienced an increase in gender-based harassment, it was incredibly high for people coming from like underrepresented races or ethnicities. So 39% of Asian women and or non-binary people, 25% of Black women and or non-binary people, 38% of Latinx women and or non-binary people, 35% of multiracial women and or non-binary people, Um, compared with 37% of white women and or non-binary people. And it shows the intersectionality of this abuse, where women from uh, and non-binary people from different racial backgrounds were experiencing it in a very different way than people who were um, not from those groups. And it's really fascinating. And, you know, like we said, kind of counterintuitive to what we you would assume based on, you know, you think, well, you're not in the workplace you know, things are going to, by default, get better. And I want to get into to some of the the factors that have driven the the increase in it, why it's not only not gotten better, but in fact gotten worse. But I think first, probably a lot of people listening are like, well, what does sexual harassment look like in a remote setting? Can you kind of give some common examples of the harassment that people have been reporting in a remote setting? Yeah, it's fascinating because it's really, there's not one form. It's really people taking 
deciding that they want to harm someone and then going through different tools or different points of access to do that. So it might be like yelling um, in a phone call or in a video conference. Often it's with other people, like they don't even care that it's more public. Often it will be um, in text, you know, like saying inappropriate comments or still having the inappropriate propositions over text. Often it's in Slack channels, making inappropriate jokes or inappropriate comments or um, hostility coming out in uh, the interactions. It can be in one-on-one video calls, one-on-one phone calls. It can be over email. A lot of people, like, they, they don't, that there's a record because there's this assumption that people aren't going to report. And we also found that people don't report, that people aren't comfortable. They don't trust HR. They don't trust their companies to do the right thing. So that's really interesting that it seems like it's emboldened harassers and has emboldened them to, as you say, not care that there's a written record of it, you know, which is something I I would think pre-pandemic times in person office that, you know, a lot of harassment maybe took place and it was hard to prove, right? You didn't have a, a paper trail of it. You didn't have, it wasn't in a group setting where other people witnessed it. But you're, you're saying now that, you know, a lot of these cases you're seeing are, are those things. What are the factors that are are driving this increase and why are people who are doing this feeling so emboldened that they can, you know, leave a paper trail, do it in front of other people? Yeah, we don't know for sure, but it does seem like there is a lot more work anxiety. People are, uh, since the pandemic, feeling a lot more anxious. I think it was like 85% of people feel like they are more anxious since the pandemic than uh, before the pandemic. Uh, People feel a lot more work pressure. They feel pressure to be online. They feel pressure to be accessible 24 by 7. They feel like their work hours have increased. And I think all of that pressure is causing them to behave badly. I also believe that there is increased sexism and racism and hate in the country over the past few years. And as we get more, um, more educated and more aware, there's more pushback. And people aren't comfortable creating these safe environments for some people. And it becomes this outlet for them is to harass their coworkers. And it's terrible. I think companies need to do a lot more to make sure that their um, employees are are, uh, being held accountable for abuse. And part of that means making sure that people feel comfortable reporting it. And, And again, it's a cycle. Like if you don't hold people accountable, people aren't going to report But once you start holding people accountable and asking people about the harm that's happening and really showing that you care and that you want to root it out and get rid of it, it can really make a difference. The last factor I think that has really had an impact is also the anxiety and pressures of living through like this racial reckoning and also all of these impacts of climate change, right? You know, I live in San Francisco where for a day during the pandemic, you know, we're all indoors trying to stay safe there was no sun. There was so much smoke from the wildfires in California that there was no sun for a day. And that's definitely anxiety-inducing and um, stress-causing. And I know that it's something that has impacted a lot of people's mental health. And I wonder if it's, you know, contributing to some of the harm and harassment that is happening in the workplace. And you touched on what companies can do. And I I definitely want to come back to that and focus on that. But the other thing that you mentioned that I'm finding a little curious is you're saying that harassers feel emboldened or seem to be, you know, if they're, if they're, as we say, like, you know, putting it in an email, doing it in a group setting. 
But you also mentioned that people are, are they less likely or just kind of the same level of unlikely to report it? And I'm wondering why, like, especially I know, you know, pre-pandemic, there's a lot of burden of proof on the person that has been harassed. You know, there's a lot of, you have to try to prove it. It's, you know, your word against theirs. You have to try to find somebody to say that they've witnessed it, try to keep any sort of, you know, paper record of it. And it can be really difficult if it happened in person. In these virtual settings where you do have a record of it, why do you think people are not coming forward? One thing that we found is that people are having a hard time setting up one-on-one meetings with their managers. And you know, it might have been something where they would check to see if the manager was available and in a good mood and walking by their office because it's something uncomfortable and they want to be in the right setting. They want to have that face-to-face in person to read the um, body language and the cues. And when you have to set up a meeting and explain why you want the meeting, it feels less safe where, oh, now I have to say I've been harassed, but are they going to take my word or are they going to talk to the other person first? Am I going to be able to tell my side of the story or are they going to come in with HR? I don't know what I'm walking into. And so maybe I'll just wait and not talk about it yet. Mm. And so we we touched a little bit on what companies can do. And, you know, I think there's long been the workplace harassment training that for most companies is, you know, not very effective. You know, obviously remote work is not going anywhere. A lot of offices are, you know, either staying completely remote or going to a hybrid work situation. What should companies consider for their policies and also for their training around harassment in a hybrid or remote work situation? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the same things that they should have been doing before the pandemic. And it's really, you have to set up your culture, you have to set up your values. And one of your values should be that people are able to work at their peak capacity. And that means no hate, that means no racism, that means no sexism, that means no homophobia, it means no ableism, it means, you know, kind of unrooting all of those biases and making sure that everybody has a fair and equitable workplace. And it's hard to do. It means, you know, dismantling all of these beliefs and all of the places that it shows up because these are systemic problems. It's not like you can have that one workplace harassment training and solve it all. It means you have to really look at like, how are you hiring people? How are you promoting people? How are you setting up teams? How are you giving people opportunities? We're working on a report right now on disabled workers. And we're really looking at, you know, how are people making accommodations available and how are they not? Like, what are the obstacles? So really thinking about, you know, what are the beliefs that went into the structures and the processes and the interactions that you have today? And how should they be informed by what we know now about all these different forms of systemic injustice? And those are the things that really require you to perhaps hire an outside set of people to help you reboot, to, you know, look at different tools that you can use in the recruiting process that are going to help make it more fair for people coming in, looking at, you know, what are the questions that you're asking? Are you setting things up so that friends have an easier time coming in because they know the questions that are going to be asked and they're prepared in advance with answers maybe from coworkers where they, you know, are you open about all the information that's being shared so that everybody has a fair chance to come in? And then, you know, how are you setting people up to succeed? What assumptions do people have about who um, can be successful? Do you have 
representation at the leadership level, at the board level of all the different groups that you want to hire from and that you want to sell your product to or serve. It's a very different world when you start thinking about like all of the problems that are in your company and all of the things you need to do to solve them. When I was at Reddit, we had problems with culture. And when I became CEO, we actually had a lot of hard conversations about it. We had an all hands where we brought in Mitch Kapoor and Frida Kapoor-Klein to talk about why culture is important, why harassment is not allowed in companies and why that makes for a better culture. We had conversations about like what's allowed and what's not allowed, what are our expectations. Our HR lead you know, had conversations with individuals and we found there were a lot of problems and there were a lot of problematic people. We had conversations with each of the problematic people and then we went back and checked to make sure that they were following our expectations and they were complying with our boundaries and our rules. And, you know, one person wasn't, so we had to fire him. But everybody else, you know, once they knew what the boundaries were, once they knew what was acceptable and what was accepted, you know, they were willing to fall in line. So it's, you know, giving people a clear set of, like, what's allowed, what's not allowed, educating them about, like, what are acceptable attitudes and what are, you know, harmful myths or harmful assumptions that you're making about people that aren't fair and that shouldn't be um, part of your decision-making process. I wonder, as you're talking about defining culture and what's allowed and what's not allowed, I wonder if it's even more challenging in a remote situation with harassment, trying to decipher tone in, you know, written communications or in email or in Slack or in, in text messages. I think, you know, especially, and I'm thinking, you know, both for leadership and management, but also for colleagues and bystanders, I think we hopefully at this point are all kind of attuned to recognize it when we see it in person and feel it in person and, and that tone comes through and that you can see people's reactions. When it's a written message, how is that different and how do you help define what's okay and what's not okay? I mean, I think there's obviously some blanket, you know, hate speech and overt harassment, but getting at that, like, that tone in written communications, how can colleagues and bystanders and, and leadership kind of help with that? I think you have to have a set of kind of guidelines, right? And you have to decide, like, is it the tone that the person assumes is there that's the problem? And then that person who wrote the email needs to figure out how to address it? Or is it, like, your policy is then the, the person who received the email and the person who sent the email have to sit down and have a conversation about it? If there is a tone problem, like, hey, maybe it's giving people a set of tools for when they feel that the tone may be inappropriate, like what should be a set of reactions and making that normal for people to have that conversation so that it's not as personal. It doesn't send up the walls and create this area that's ripe for conflict. It's, you know, hey, we're doing things by email. We may have some misunderstandings based on tone. Here's a conversation that everybody should practice having when you feel like there's a tone mismatch and here's a way of accepting that feedback or you know kind of dealing with that conflict if you're the sender of the email and here's a set of things that you can say in response and then you know you kind of have this forced set of interactions but you make it easier for people who might just feel so much anxiety around it and then they're thinking about it for 24 hours and then it builds up or now they're going back and looking at their old emails. Like, you know, try to cut it off before it becomes bigger than it actually is by 
enabling a conversation or a set of interactions to kind of dissipate some of that tension and that misunderstanding, hopefully. Yeah, that's really helpful. I wonder if you have any other advice for both people who may have been experiencing this themselves or colleagues and and bystanders who are witnessing it or feel like something's, you know, not quite right. Does your advice differ in a remote work setting than it did in an in-person setting? I mean, I know, obviously, you know, as we've talked about in an in-person setting, you want to try to gather as much evidence as you can. You mentioned like kind of being able to gauge the mood and feeling of your direct manager when you're like going to have the conversation. How does all that differ in a remote work setting and like what can you do? One of the hard parts of remote work setting is the relationships are a lot more distant, right? If we're in the office together, you know, we're having side conversations. I'm, you know, telling you how much I like your haircut or how much that comment that you made in that meeting made an impact on me or even, you know, saying, appreciate your showing up and let's have lunch. But none of that interaction, kind of the invisible glue that holds together some teams is there. I think a lot of companies are trying to make it happen and some are doing better than others. But for the most part, like people are working really hard. The Zoom meetings are very transactional. There's not a lot of talk about personal life and personal connection. And that piece is really causing people, one, to not have that strong relationship. Like, I'm not going to yell at somebody that I like a lot, probably. I'm less likely to. I'm less likely to harass somebody if I respect them because we've built this connection and we have a lot of goodwill between us. And that anxiety and that lack of connection create situations which enable people and cause people to cause harm on their coworkers. And that piece, I think, you know, there's also kind of, it adds stress. So we talked to um, Leanne Williams, who is a professor at Stanford, who told us about how all of this anxiety is weighing on our brains and, you know, it's physically causing damage to our brains as an organ. And that requires time for our brains to recover, and it requires healing. And one of the elements of healing that is incredibly powerful is this connection with others. And the fact that we've lost that ability to connect with others in our workplace is actually uh, preventing us from healing and, and recovering from all of this anxiety and stress that we've been experiencing and continue to experience in this pandemic. What can the the victims of harassment do, understanding that, you know, that they can't maybe build that, or it's a little more difficult to build those relationships, you know, is there is there something that they can do to, you know, report it or to make the situation different? And what can colleagues do if they kind of sense that this is happening? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard. If you don't trust your workplace, I'm not going to say go trust your workplace and report it, right? I, it's too frequent that people aren't believed that they are pushed out, that they are not respected in that reporting. And, you know, people who report are actually giving the company a huge gift. And this is a piece that is very frustrating for me. Like companies should be seeking out these reports so that they can get rid of these problems. There's no company that is out there saying, I want to be the place where people can harass freely. They don't want harassment, but you're not going to solve it by not looking for it, by putting up um, shields and ignoring it and avoiding it and never dealing with it. That only makes it worse. So 
you know, if you don't feel comfortable reporting, you probably have a good reason for not reporting. Either, you know, find a different group, find ways to avoid that person, or try to get out of that organization. Like it just, it's not healthy, it's not safe. You know, if you can, try to get out. If you can't, you know, um, try to build connections with other people in your workplace or outside that can help you maintain your mental health and really, you know, kind of try to compensate for the fact that you're experiencing all this harm at work. I wish there were an easy answer, right? I wish it were like, oh, here's an outside organization you can report to and that's going to solve your problem. But it's not like we have, we live in this very toxic industry where there is all of this harm. People continue to um, get, uh, get jobs after it's known that they've been harassing other people. And they continue to get funded. They continue to run organizations. And I'm sure those organizations aren't great for women and non-binary people. And that's unfortunately the way it is. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a crucial issue to businesses right now as we continue to talk about the great resignation and, you know, finding the right talent that to lose good people for these reasons and to continue to, you know, let these issues fester really, you know, it's a it's a business issue. It's a bottom line issue to to how your company runs. And I think it's a unique challenge, but it's something I think we need to figure out how to address this in a remote work setting because it's, you know, it's not going away. Yeah. And I think the remoteness has kind of, there has been a reckoning around race, around what people are willing to tolerate in the workplace. And, you know, the fact that they aren't at work every day has maybe given people space to have some perspective on their jobs, on their lives. The fact that we're dealing with this pandemic that is killing millions of people across the world, it's caused people to kind of recenter on what are their values. And, you know, there was a recent survey, 79% of new graduates believe diversity, equity, and inclusion is very important in the workplace, right? And that includes a lot of white men, right? It's not just the... Um, you know, the people who are experiencing the harm, like people don't want to work in an environment where people are being harmed, right? It it sounds like everybody should want to work in an environment where people aren't being harmed, right? But now people are recognizing that there is harm happening and they don't want to be there. So I do think companies are going to have to change in order to be able to hire in the future. And, you know, recently at Stanford, the Stanford Daily reported last month that, you know, students are turning down lucrative jobs at Google because they don't agree with their ethics and their lack of diversity. So there is a push for change and it's coming from the bottom. And if I were a CEO at a tech startup or a tech company, I would pay attention to that. Like get ahead of it, right? These changes, you know, we just talked about are slow and they require a lot of work, especially if you're a large company, but that's what people are looking for and that's what people care about. Yeah, and culture and reputation are just as important as any of the other factors when especially when people are looking looking for a job or looking to stay at a job. So, yeah, it's it's really important. Um Ellen Powell, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. How has your job addressed workplace harassment since the pandemic moved most workplaces remote? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. 